0: CHAPTER thirty one-A GREATER LOSS It was not difficult for me, on Peggotty's solicitation, to resolve to stay where I was until after the remains of the poor carrier should have made their last journey to Blunderstone. She had long ago bought, out of her own savings, a little piece of ground in our old churchyard, near the grave of "her sweet girl," as she always called my mother, and there they were to rest. In keeping Peggotty company, and doing all I could for her, little enough at the utmost, I was as grateful I rejoiced to think as even now I could wish myself to have been, but I am afraid I had a supreme satisfaction of a personal and professional nature in taking charge of Mr. Barkers's will and expounding its contents. I may claim the merit of having originated the suggestion that the will should be looked for in the box. After some search it was found in the box, at the bottom of a horse's nose-bag, wherein, besides hay, there was discovered an old gold watch with chain and seals, which Mr. Barkis had worn on his wedding-day, and which had never been seen before or since, a silver tobacco-stopper in the form of a leg, an imitation lemon full of minute cups and saucers, which I have some idea Mr. Barkis must have purchased to present to me when I was a child, and afterwards found himself unable to part with eighty-seven guineas and a half in guineas and half-guineas, two hundred and ten pounds in perfectly clean bank-notes, certain receipts for Bank of England stock, an old horseshoe, a bad shilling, a piece of camphor, and an oyster-shell. From the circumstance of the latter article having been much polished, and displaying prismatic colours on the inside, I conclude that Mr. Barkis had some general ideas about pearls. Which never resolved themselves into anything definite for years and years. Mr. Barkis had carried this box on all his journeys every day that it might the better escape notice he had invented a fiction that it belonged to Mr. Blackboy and was to be left with Barkis till called for a fable he had elaborately written on the lid in characters now scarcely legible. he had hoarded all these years, I found to good purpose. His property in money amounted to nearly three thousand pounds. Of this he bequeathed the interest of one thousand to Mr. Peggotty for his life. On his decease, the principal to be equally divided between Peggotty, little Emily, and me, or the survivor or survivors of us, share and share alike. All the rest he died possessed of, he bequeathed to Peggotty whom he left residuary legatee and sole executrix of that his last will and testament. I felt myself quite a proctor when I read this document aloud with all possible ceremony, and set forth its provisions any number of times to those whom they concerned. I began to think there was more in the Commons than I had supposed. I examined the will with the deepest attention, pronounced it perfectly formal in all respects, made a pencil-mark or so in the margin, and thought it rather extraordinary that I knew so much. In this abstruse pursuit, in making an account for Peggotty of all the property in which she had come, in arranging all the affairs in an orderly manner, and in being her referee and adviser on every point to our joint delight, I passed the week before the funeral. I did not see little Emily in this interval, but they told me she was to be quietly married in a fortnight. I did not attend the funeral in character, if I may venture to say so. I mean I was not dressed up in a black cloak and a streamer to frighten the birds. But I walked over to Blunderstone early in the morning, and was in the churchyard when it came attended only by Peggotty and her brother. The mad gentleman looked on out of my little window. Mr. Chillip's baby wagged its heavy head and rolled its goggle eyes at the clergyman over its nurse's shoulder. Mr. Omer breathed short in the background. No one else was there, and it was very quiet. We walked about the churchyard for an hour after all was over, and pulled some young leaves from the tree above my mother's grave. A dread falls on me here. A cloud is lowering on the distant town towards which I retraced my solitary steps. I fear to approach it. I cannot bear to think of what did come upon that memorable night of what must come again if I go on. It is no worse because I write of it. It would be no better if I stopped my most unwilling hand. It is done. Nothing can undo it, nothing can make it otherwise than it was. My old nurse was to go to London with me next day on the business of the will. Little Emily was passing that day at Mr. Omer's. We were all to meet in the old boat house that night. Ham would bring Emily at the usual hour, I would walk back at my leisure. The brother and sister would return as they had come, and be expecting us when the day closed in at the fireside. I parted from them at the wicket-gate, where visionary straps had rested with Roderick Random's knapsack in the days of yore, and instead of going straight back, walked a little distance on the road to Lowestoft. Then I turned and walked back towards Yarmouth. I stayed to dine at a decent alehouse, some mile or two from the ferry I have mentioned before, and thus the day wore away, and it was evening when I reached it. Rain was falling heavily by that time, and it was a wild night, but there was a moon behind the clouds, and it was not dark. I was soon within sight of Mr Peggotty's house, and of the light within it shining through the window. A little floundering across the sand, which was heavy, brought me to the door, and I went in. It looked very comfortable indeed. Mr. Peggotty had smoked his evening pipe, and there were preparations for some supper by and by. The fire was bright, the ashes were thrown up, the locker was ready for little Emily in her old place. In her own old place sat Peggotty once more, looking, but for her dress, as if she had never left it. She had fallen back already on the society of the workbox with Saint Paul's upon the lid the yard-measure in the cottage, and the bit of wax candle, and there they all were, just as if they had never been disturbed. Mrs. Gummidge appeared to be fretting a little in her old corner, and consequently looked quite natural, too. "'You're first of the lot, Master Davy,' said Mr. Peggotty with a happy face. "'Don't keep in that coat, sir, if it's wet.' "'Thank you, Mr. Peggotty," said I, giving him my outer coat to hang up. "'It's quite dry.' So tis, said Mr Peggotty, feeling my shoulders, as a chip. Sit ye down, sir. It ain't o no use saying welcome to you, but you're welcome, kind and hearty. Thank you, Mr Peggotty, I am sure of that. Well, Peggotty, said I, giving her a kiss, and how are you, old woman? Ha, ha! laughed Mr Peggotty, sitting down beside us and rubbing his hands in his sense of relief from recent trouble. "'and in the genuine heartiness of his nature. "'There's not a woman in the world, sir, as I tell her, "'that need to feel more easy in her mind than her. "'She done her duty by the departed, and the departed knowed it, "'and the departed done what was right by her, "'as she done what was right by the departed, "'and, and, and it's all right.' "'Mrs. Gummidge groaned. "'Cheer up, my pretty mother,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'But he shook his head aside at us.' evidently sensible of the tendency of the late occurrence to recall the memory of the old one. "'Don't be downed. Cheer up for your own self only a little bit, and see if a good deal more don't come a-natural.' "'Not to me, Dan'l,' returned Mrs. Gummidge. "Nothin's natural to me but to be lone and lorn.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Peggotty, soothing her sorrows. "'Yes, yes, Dan'l,' said Mrs. Gummidge.' "'I ain't a person to live with them as has had money left. Thinks go to contrary with me. "'I'd better be a riddance.' "'Why, how should I ever spend it without you?' said Mr. Peggotty with an air of serious remonstrance. "'What are you a-talking on? "'Don't I want you more now than ever I did?' "'I knowed it was never wanted before,' cried Mrs. Gummidge, with a pitiable whimper. "'And now I am told so.' How can I expect to be wanted, being so lone and lorn and so contrary?" Mr. Peggotty seemed very much shocked at himself for having made a speech capable of this unfeeling construction, but was prevented from replying by Peggotty's pulling his sleeve and shaking her head. After looking at Mrs. Gummidge for some moments, in sore distress of mind, he glanced at the Dutch clock, rose, snuffed the candle, and put it in the window there said mr peggotty cheerily there we are mrs gummidge mrs gummidge slightly groaned light it up according to custom you're a wondering what that's for sir well it's for our little em'ly you see the path ain't over light or cheerful arter dark and when i'm here at the hour as she's a comin' home i puts the light in the winder that you see said mr peggotty bending over me with great glee meets two objects. She says, says Emily, there's home, she says, and likewise, says Emily, my uncle's there, for if I ain't there, I never have no light showed. "'You're a baby,' said Peggotty, very fond of him for it, if she thought so. "'Well,' returned Mr. Peggotty, standing with his legs pretty wide apart, and rubbing his hands up and down them in his comfortable satisfaction, as he looked alternately at us and at the fire, I don't know, but I am not, you see, to look at. Not exactly, observed Peggotty. No, laughed Mister Peggotty. Not to look at, but to to consider on, you know. I don't care, bless you. Now I tell you, when I go a looking and looking about that there pretty house of our Emily's, I'm I'm gormed," said Mister Peggotty with sudden emphasis. There, I can't say more. If I don't feel as if the littlest things was her a most, I takes em up and I puts em down, and I touches em as delicate as if they were our Emily. So tis with her little bonnets and that. I couldn't see one of em rough used a purpose, not for the old world. There's a babby for you in the form of a great sea porcupine," said Mister Peggotty, relieving his earnestness with a roar of laughter. Peggotty and I both laughed. "'but not so loud. "'It's my opinion, you see,' "'said Mr. Peggotty with a delighted face, "'after some further rubbing of his legs. "'As this is long of my haven't played with her so much, "'and may believe as we was Turks and French and sharks "'and every variety of foreigners, bless you, "'yes, and lions and whales, "'and I don't know what all, "'when she wa'n't no higher than my knee. "'I've got into the way on it, you know,' "'Why, this ere candle now?' said Mr. Peggotty, gleefully holding out his hand towards it. "'I know very well that out she's married and gone, I shall put that candle there, just that same as now. I know very well that when I'm here o' nights, and where else should I live, bless your arts, whatever fortune I come into, and she ain't here, or I ain't there, I shall put the candle in the winder, and sit afore for the fire, pretending I'm expecting of her, "'like I'm doing now.' "'There's a babby for you,' said Mr. Peggotty with another roar, "'in the form of a sea porcupine. "'Why, at the present minute, when I see the candle sparkle up, "'I say to myself, she's looking at it. "'Emily's a comin.' "'There's a babby for you in the form of a sea porcupine. "'Right for all that,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'stopping in his roar and smiting his hands together. "'For here she is.' It was only Ham. The night should have turned more wet since I came in, for he had a large sou'wester hat on, slouched over his face. "Where's Emily?" said Mr Peggotty. Ham made a motion with his head as if she were outside. Mr Peggotty, took the light from the window, trimmed it, put it on the table and was busily stirring the fire, when Ham, who had not moved, said, "Master Davy, will you come out a minute?" and see what Emily and me has got to show you?" We went out. As I passed him at the door I saw, to my astonishment and fright, that he was deadly pale. He pushed me hastily into the open air, and closed the door upon us—only upon us too. Ham! What's the matter? Master Davy! Oh, for his broken heart, how dreadfully he wept! I was paralysed by the sight of such grief. I don't know what I thought or what I dreaded. I could only look at him. Ham! Poor good fellow! For heaven's sake! Tell me what's the matter?" "'My love, massa Davy! The pride and hope of my heart! er that I'd have died for, and would die for now! She's gone!' "'Gone?' "'Emily's run away! Oh, massa Davy! Think how she's run away, when I pray my good and gracious God to kill her, her that is so dear above all things, sooner than let her come to ruin and disgrace!' The face he turned up to the troubled sky, the quivering of his clasped hands, the agony of his figure, remain associated with that lonely waste in my remembrance to this hour. It is always night there, and he is the only object in the scene. "'You are a scholar?' he said hurriedly, "'I know what's right and best. What am I to say indoors? How am I ever to break it to him, Master Davy?' I saw the door move, and instinctively tried to hold the latch on the outside, to gain a moment's time. It was too late. Mr. Peggotty thrust forth his face, and never could I forget the change that came upon it when he saw us, if I were to live five hundred years. I remember a great wail and cry and the women hanging about him, and we all standing in the room, I with a paper in my hand, which Ham had given me, Mr. Peggotty with his vest torn open, his hair wild, his face and lips quite white, and blood trickling down his bosom. It had sprung from his mouth, I think, looking fixedly at me. "'Read it, sir,' he said in a low, shivering voice. "'Slow, please. I don't know as I can understand.' In the midst of this silence of death, I read thus from a blotted letter. "'When you, who love me so much better than I ever have deserved, even when my mind was innocent, see this, I shall be far away.' "'I shall be far away?' he repeated slowly. "'Stop, Emily, far away? Well?' "'When I leave my dear home, my dear home, oh, my dear home, in the morning,' The letter bore date on the previous night. "'It will be to never come back, "'unless he brings me back a lady. "'This will be found at night, "'many hours after, instead of me. "'Oh, if you knew how my heart is torn! "'If even you, that I have wronged so much, "'that never can forgive me, "'could only know what I suffer! "'I am too wicked to write about myself. "'Oh, take comfort in thinking that I am so bad! "'Oh, for mercy's sake, tell uncle, "'that I never loved him half so dear as now. "'Oh, don't remember how affectionate and kind you have all been to me. "'Don't remember we were ever to be married, "'but try to think as if I died when I was little and was buried somewhere. "'Pray heaven that I am going away from have compassion on my uncle. "'Tell him that I never loved him half so dear. "'Be his comfort. "'Love some good girl that will be what I was once to uncle "'and be true to you and worthy of you. And no, no shame but me. God bless all. I'll pray for all, often on my knees. If he don't bring me back a lady and I don't pray for my own self, I'll pray for all. My parting love to uncle, my last tears, and my last thanks for uncle." That was all. He stood long after I had ceased to read, still looking at me. At length I ventured to take his hand and to entreat him as well as I could to endeavour to get some command of himself. He replied, "'I thank ye, sir, I thank ye,' without moving. Ham spoke to him. Mr. Peggotty was so far sensible of his affliction that he wrung his hand. But otherwise he remained in the same state, and no one dared to disturb him. Slowly at last he moved his eyes from my face as if he were waking from a vision, and cast them around the room. Then he said in a low voice, Who's the man? I want to know his name. Ham glanced at me and suddenly I felt a shock that struck me back. "There's a man suspected," said Mr Peggotty. "Who is it?" "Master Davy," implored Ham. "Go out a bit and let me tell him what I must. You don't ought to hear it, sir." I felt the shock again. I sank down in a chair and tried to utter some reply but my tongue was fettered and my sight was weak. "'I want to know his name,' I heard said once more. "'For some time past,' Ham faltered, "'there's been a servant about here, at odd times. There's been a gentleman, too. Both of em belonged to one another.' Mr. Peggotty stood fixed as before, but now looking at him. "'The servant,' pursued Ham, "'was seen along with our poor girl last night. He's been in hiding about here, this week or over. He was thought to have gone, but he was hiding. Don't stay, Master Davy. Don't!' I felt Peggotty's arm round my neck, but I could not have moved if the house had been about to fall upon me. "'A strange shay and orses was outside town this morning, on an arch road, and whilst a the day broke,' Ham went on. "'The servant went to it, and come from it, and went to it again,' "'When he went to it again, Emily was nigh him. "'The t'other was inside. He's the man.' "'For the Lord's love,' said Mr. Peggotty, falling back and putting out his hand as if to keep off what he dreaded. "'Don't tell me his name's Steerforth.' "'Master Davy!' exclaimed Ham in a broken voice. "'It ain't no fault of your'n, and I am far from laying it off to you, but his name is Steerforth.' and he's a damned villain!" Mr. Peggotty uttered no cry and shed no tear, and moved no more until he seemed to wake again all at once, and pull down his rough coat from its peg in a corner. "'Bear a hand with this. I am struck of a heap, and I can't do it,' he said impatiently. Bear a hand, and help me, well, when somebody had done so. Now give me that thereat!' Ham asked him whither he was going. "'I am a-going to seek my niece. "'Am I going to seek my Emily? "'Am I going first, to stave in that there boat, "'and sink it where I would have drowned him, "'as I a living soul if I had had one thought of what was in him? "'As he sat afore me,' he said wildly, "'holding out his clenched right hand, "'as he sat afore me, face to face, "'strike me down dead, but I'd have drowned him, "'and thought it right. "'Am I going to seek my niece?' "'Where?' cried Ham, interposing himself before the door. "'Anywhere. I'm a going to seek my niece through the world. "'I'm going to find my poor niece in her shame and bring her back. "'No one stop me. I tell you, I'm going to seek my niece.' "'No, no,' cried Mrs. Gummidge, coming between them in a fit of crying. "'No, no, Dan'l, not as you are now. "'Seek her in a little while, my lone lawn Dan'l, "'and now be but right, but not as you are now. "'Sit ye down.' "'and give me your forgiveness for having ever been a worry to you, Daniel. "'What of my contraries ever been to this? "'And let us speak a word about them times when she was first and often, "'when Anne was too, and when I was a poor widow-woman, and you took me in. "'It'll soften your poor heart, Daniel,' laying her head upon his shoulder, "'and you'll bear your sorrow better, for you know the promise, Dan'l, "'as you have done it unto one of the least of these.' You've done it unto me, and that can never fail under this roof that's been our shelter for so many, many years. He was quite passive now, and when I heard him crying, the impulse that had been upon me to go down upon my knees and ask their pardon for the desolation I had caused and curse steerforth yielded to a better feeling. My overcharged heart found the same relief, and I cried too.